0: Hello and happy Monday, everyone! If you're listening to this today, I am officially 100 days sober, which is truly unimaginable. I well, a, I can't believe how fast this year is flying by, but I also just can't believe that I went into this year thinking maybe I'd do a dry January or like maybe I'd do a year without drinking. And here I am 100 days in literally never questioning my decision and feeling so confident in my sobriety. And I just I feel so incredibly blessed and grateful and just so happy. And so I was going to originally uh, do a solo episode of 100 things I learned about alcohol once I quit drinking um, but we're going to shorten it to 23 because a hundred is a lot of things to come up with. And I'm sure there are a are hundred reasons, but, you know, it's going to be 23 things I learned about alcohol in 2023. With the caveat of being once I quit drinking. Um, and this is a solo episode, if I didn't say that already. So it'll just be me talking with some facts that I mostly pulled from two books being... Alcohol explained by William Porter and Quit Like a Woman by Holly Whitaker, both of which I highly recommend. Um, especially Quit Like a Woman, that book like changed my life. And yeah, without further ado, I'm gonna get right into the facts. So I hope you enjoy. And if you have any questions or you know want to hear me explain a little bit more about one or two of the facts, I'm happy to do so. And as always, if you have any questions and want to talk about you know um, your own sobriety journey, if you're thinking about Reevaluating your relationship out uh, with alcohol. My DMs are always open. I'm always here. But yeah, here we go. So the first thing I learned about alcohol once I stopped drinking it is really what the definition of excessive drinking was. So, heavy drinking is defined as consuming eight or more drinks per week for women or fifteen or more drinks per week p- for men. Um, so this means if you're having a glass of wine per night and, let's say, an extra drink one of those seven nights a week, you're already in the category of excessive drinking. Now, this is really interesting to me because I was justifying my drinking problem or, you know, lack thereof by comparing myself to others saying, Oh, well, I can't be. I just drink one glass of wine a night. You know, I'm um, so much better than those people just drinking heavily, taking all those shots on the weekends. Um, Or those times, you know, when I would just tell my doctor when they'd ask, she'd ask how much I drink a week, and I'd say seven drinks. Like, little did I know that I was already kind of in the category of excessive drinking. And I think we often, use this comparison theory to, you know, justify our choices when in reality, you know, if you're a girl or a woman drinking more than eight glasses of alcohol a week, you're already in the category of excessive drinking. The second thing I learned, and this was probably the first thing I noticed, was just how much alcohol fucks up your skin. So when you drink, uh, the dehydrating or diuretic effect of alcohol means that your skin loses fluid and nutrients that are vital for healthy looking skin. Um, This can make your skin look wrinkled, dull, gray, bloated, and puffy, etc. It can also uh, make you more prone to some types of eczema, which is something that I personally dealt with before I quit drinking. And um, once I stopped, I've noticed not only is my eczema gone gone away, but I've also so much like such clear skin, my acne's gone. Um, I talk about this all the time, but I've It's really like chef's kiss. Now, speaking of, you know, things related to appearance, there's obviously a big correlation between alcohol and weight gain. For quick context, I did not in any way, shape, or form decide to quit drinking to lose weight. Um, That was never my intention, but I have noticed, you know, a significant change in how I look since I've stopped drinking. Um, So for a little bit, of kind of the science behind it. Alcohol contains about seven calories a gram, which is about the sa- um, as many calories as in pure fat. Cal- calories from alcohol are empty calories, meaning they have no nutritional value. It's actually um, interesting. I think uh, alcohol is the only, what is it? The only drink or beverage on the market that has absolutely no nutritional value, which is just interesting. And, um, of course, you know, the calories in an alcoholic drink don't just come from the alcohol. A pint of lager could contain the same amount of calories as a slice of pizza and a glass of wine can contain the same amount of calories as an ice cream sundae. So even though, again, I don't track my weight, I don't weigh myself, um, I have noticed my face is significantly less puffy, I'm less bloated and all that since I stopped drinking. Fourth thing I learned is that alcohol doesn't actually warm you up. So the notion of a beer blanket or drinking wine to, you know, warm yourself up a little bit is actually complete bullshit. Alcohol does the opposite. Drinking causes blood to rush to the surface of the skin, which can make you feel warmer initially, but while that's happening your body temperature is actually dropping. So alcohol causes your blood vessels to dilate, making you lose heat more quickly, and it also blocks your body's warmth process by causing chills so if you have ever been drinking and you know felt those chills come on that's exactly what your body's doing it's um, you're losing warmth as opposed to gaining it. number five is one of the most interesting things in my opinion that I've learned about alcohol is its connection to dehydration So the easiest way to think about this is thinking of a um, car, and uh, William Porter talks about this in his book, Alcohol Explained. But basically, if you think of a fuel gauge in a car, it shows how much fuel is in the tank. And then if the fuel drops below a certain level, a red light comes on as an additional warning. In the same way, our bodies have a gauge that determines the level of reserve water. And when this level drops below you know, a certain point, the thirst mechanism is triggered. So if we could look at alcohol... From the analogy of a car, it's like recalibrating the fuel gauge so that the gauge shows full when the fuel tank is actually empty. That's what happens when we drink alcohol. Our bodies think it has more water than it actually has. So um, let's say, you know, there's a hypothetical person that has 100% of the correct water reserve, i.e. at that particular point in time, they are perfectly hydrated. Um, they then start drinking alcohol. Now, apart from the fact that the alcohol is consumed as a liquid, which will need to be urinated out, the alcohol also recalibrates their internal water gauge with the effect that a percentage of the reserve water is also expelled. Um, this is why after a few drinks, we need to start peeing and you know, break the seal. And not only do we urinate out the exact amount of liquid that we consumed, but much more as our body also rids itself of what it thinks is unwanted water. Um, but it's actually, again, we're your brain thinks it has more water than it has. Then the next morning or during the course of the day, the effect slowly wears off and the body gauges that it does not contain enough reserve water and you start to feel super thirsty. So what's really interesting about this is like I used to try to mitigate the effects of a hangover by drinking water between each glass of wine or after out a night out of drinking. Um, but this wasn't doing literally anything. If anything, it was making things worse because once you've broken the seal and our peeing out, you know, all of that liquid, you're also peeing out that extra water. It never even, you know, replenishes because again, your body, your brain thinks it has more water than it actually does. Sixth thing I learned is how alcohol disrupts sleep. So, even though, you know, uh after a glass of wine, you'll fall asleep faster because the alcohol is um helping kick in a slow wave sleep, we aren't actually reaping any of the benefits of a deeper sleep because our alpha or thinking brain waves are also activated. So this means our brain isn't actually getting the benefit of slow wave sleep, which is responsible for recuperation of the brain and body. Um, I think this is pretty evident after a night of drinking when you wake up hungover and are um, exhausted the entire day. It's because you just didn't get a full night's sleep. Um, Also, what's interesting about this is this doesn't just happen. This is like a cumulative effect. So even if you're not drinking Every single day, or on the other hand, if you just if you have a, a drink every night, as opposed to one night of a lot of drinks, it's the same thing. So either way, your body thinks it's recuperating, um, or not even being effective, but it's a cumulative effect if you're drinking a little bit each night. So the seventh thing I learned is how alcohol disrupts our endocrine. I might be butchering that word, but our hormone function. So um, our endocrine system is responsible for regulating our bodily functions, such as our metabolism, sex drive, sleep cycles, energy levels, menstrual cycle, and stress response, to name just a few. Alcohol disrupts the functioning of the endocrine system on a number of levels, such as disrupting the sleep cycle, which previously was mentioned, raising estrogen levels, and depleting testosterone levels. Um, So hence why I break out so much when I was drinking. In terms of acne. Um, It also artificially stimulates the fight or flight response, uh, which is yet another cause of anxiety, depression, and insomnia. So, in other words, alcohol assaults the system in charge of making our body run properly, which results in fatigue, low sex drive, worsening periods, mood imbalance, poor metabolic function, adrenal fatigue, and disrupted sleep cycles. Eighth thing I have learned. Alcohol causes premature aging. Um, this is pretty evident, given you know all of the talk about how alcohol affects our skin and our sleep and um, our waking, etc. Uh, alcohol also leads to the loss of collagen and elasticity. Depletes us of the minerals, nutrients, and antioxidants that counter free radical damage. Um, alcohol depletes us of zinc and vitamin A, two antioxidants that are vital for the skin and regeneration of new cells. Um, So all that is to say that if you want to preserve your youth, you should probably refrain from drinking. So the 10th thing I learned about alcohol once I stopped drinking it is that it fuels anxiety, which I feel like we hear a lot is that like when you drink, you get anxious, but uh, not many people dive into it. And I certainly was the person who, you know, whenever I had a really tough day or was feeling nervous about something would grab a glass of wine for a date before going out just you know while watching tv etc but according to holly whitaker in her book she says you know because alcohol is primarily depressant we prefer to take the edge off which i did and it does initially however the counteractive process or the b process to the depressant nature of the alcohol is a release of cortisol and adrenaline into the body so if you drink one glass of wine you might have about 20 minutes of the desired relaxed effect before the drug or the a process wears off and you're left with increased amounts of cortisol and adrenaline which fuels that anxiety this means that alcohol doesn't manage anxiety it just it causes it it's actually one of the worst drugs we can imbibe if we are prone to depressive and anxious states so for someone who is prone to depression and anxiety I really shouldn't have been drinking. Um, the 11th fact, which I've I learned about alcohol and I've talked a lot about on this podcast, is that alcohol is just as dangerous and addictive as other drugs. In fact, it is the second most addictive drug after heroin. Heroin. Second most addictive drug after heroin. I just want to say that like eight times because Again, it just shows how much big alcohol companies influence our life. We're making the second most addictive drug after heroin, which is we look at heroin addicts as a society as like these people who like how could you get to that place? How could you go so far downhill? And yet, we promote alcohol like it's literally God's beverage. Sorry, I just get so passionate about that. And I woke up from a nap and I just want to say one more time alcohol is the second most addictive drug after heroin. And we don't call people who do heroin, heroinaholics, or, you know, cocaine, which I think is like the second, like 16th most addictive drug. You know, that's still looked down upon. If, if I were a moderate cocaine user, people would like report me. Um, but no, alcohol attributable deaths are also the third leading preventable cause of death in America. According to the CDC and Prevent, um, or Center for Disease Control and Prevention, eighty-eight thousand four hundred and twenty-four people die from alcohol-related deaths each year in the U.S. That's wild. So, again, second most addictive drug after heroin. Twelfth thing is that alcohol is really the number one date rape drug. I know that sounds weird, but it is tied to sexual assault and a large portion of domestic violence. It's something that we use without understanding the consequences of it. Um in fact, a 2005 study into a drug-facilitated sexual assault found that alcohol was the most commonly used substance in more than 1000 cases. Um similarly, home office figures from 2013 and 2014 revealed that 36% of domestic violence incidents were alcohol related. Um I know this is a heavy topic to talk about but it's so important if you think about the the sexual assault crisis on campuses and you know hearing from quote-unquote both sides and alcohol always being used as well they can't remember it so they can't prove their case or well he was drunk so you know he's not at fault like this is so bad like alcohol has become so ingrained in society that it's causing all these problems but then it's being used as like a scapegoat for them so I don't even know I'm I'm not in college anymore I don't know you know what to say or how to prevent that besides from you know just being really careful and realizing that like alcohol is very dangerous especially when you drink a lot which sounds like so obvious but it has to be, you know, re- restated again and again and again and again and again. Number thirteen: Alcohol is linked to seven different cancers. Um, alcohol is a carcinogen, so that means it causes cancer. The evidence of the link between drinking and cancer is almost re- irrefutable. For breast cancer alone, more than one hundred studies have reaffirmed the link between drinking and breast cancer. Women who drink three alcoholic beverages a week—just, just three, three have a 15% higher risk of breast cancer. That risk is increased by 10% for each additional drink women have daily. Um so for me, someone who is very prone to breast cancer, my mom had it, my grandma on my mom's side had it, my grandma on my dad's side passed away from it. It's very in my family and and I was I'm very careful about about what I choose to do be, because of my risk of breast cancer and yet i was definitely drinking more than three alcoholic beverages a week um breast cancer is only one of the cancers linked to alcohol too uh the others include mouth and throat esophagus voice box liver colon and rectum basically any place in the digestive system that alcohol comes into contact with um and the cancer risk isn't reserved for heavy drinkers light to moderate use puts you at a higher risk for cancer period 14th thing uh alcohol fucks up your brain in her book, Never Enough, Judith Grizzle calls alcohol a neurological sledgehammer because it doesn't affect just one region of the brain, but it really affects literally all of them. It compromises the entire brain. Memory, motor function, inhibition, personality, emotional validity or volatility. Virtually nothing is untouched by alcohol, which assaults our brain on almost every known level. Again, um, this is not a problem that's isolated to just heavy drinking one drink modern drinking and heavy drinking all negatively impact our brains which is really our most precious organ okay 15th thing i've learned um about alcohol since i stopped drinking is that it impacts decision making granted i wouldn't say that this is like something new like i think as a society we kind of joke about how much alcohol impacts our decision making you know, like making poor decisions with poor spelled P-O-U-R. And like I, I just, I've used that as a caption on my Instagram. But um, I think the science behind it is a little bit more interesting. So alcohol, although it's a depressant, can often make people more inhibited. It increases the levels of dopamine in the brain briefly, which is the happy hormone and responsible for sending pleasure signals. This gives the buzz that many drinkers seek. It also raises level of GABA, which is a chemical that sends out relaxation messages from the brain. Um, so in this sense, it's lowering the anxiety and stress briefly and causing your body temperature tr- to drop and your heart rate and blood pressure to co- um, come down. So as you can see, all of this is kind of, you know, connecting to what I've talked about before. But then... That's just the one part of the brain. Alcohol also increases the levels of "I'm going to butcher this, no rep and in your brain which acts as a stimulant. So again, remember, alcohol is both both a depressant and a stimulant. Um, so this causes incre- an increase in arousal and excitement and increases impulsivity, making it harder to appreciate the consequences of your actions. This uh, particular effect can contribute to risky sexual behavior um, and just risky behavior in general. And then finally, and I think this is the one that like is talked about the most, alcohol inhibits the activity of your prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that helps you think rationally and is involved in your decision-making abilities. Uh, This part of the brain is responsible for thinking clearly and rationally, and it's the part that controls your ability to make good decisions. When you drink, the alcohol in your bloodstream disrupts your ability to choose responsibly, and you'll act without thinking about the consequences of your actions. So that's all the science in terms of the brain. I think what I would, when I learned most about this, is that I think as a society we've kind of normalized the fact that alcohol makes us make stupid decisions, and then because drink, our like culture is so obsessed with drinking and is has just again normalized excessive drinking, then we can just kind of use. I'll call us a scapegoat for making decisions that maybe we like somewhere deep down like wanted to like wanted to do wanted to make wanted to go about but also know deep down that they were not the right decision to make or like could impact our safety our health our etc and when I just keep thinking about you know all of these different meme accounts that joke about drinking and being blacked out and waking up not knowing where you are and all this like I I don't know as someone like studying to become a therapist it almost seemed like a defense mechanism just to be like up oh, make I was just making poor decisions or like it was the alcohol talking or a uh, drunk word speak sober thoughts blah 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 when in reality like if we really think about it and if we're honest to ourselves most of those conversations like yeah we can blame it on alcohol but then we have some deep regret and deep feelings of shame for those actions that we did and I think that's something really to think about is like okay and and also like when I say this I'm not looking down on anyone who's drinking and blaming alcohol because I was one of those people I literally have a fake Instagram from college and it it just was comprised of me drinking making silly decisions and acting crazy and then I could just say oh no I was so drunk in that picture like I was so silly because you know I was hammered but I then you go home at night or you reach a point when you're in your early 20s mid 20s late 20s and you're like this isn't funny anymore and I think we need to sit, take a step back and be like can I really blame alcohol for all those things I did last night like am I happy with those decisions or am I just blaming alcohol and then feeling shitty afterwards because I wasn't behaving according to my character and my values 16th thing alcohol impacts sex Now, this may seem obvious. Uh, I think we've all heard the term whiskey dick or know that, you know, after a night of heavy drinking, sometimes it's hard to get it up. Uh, But if you think about it, that's all really from the male perspective. And after doing some research, I was actually surprised with what I found about how alcohol affects um, the female anatomy. So I'm going to first talk a little bit about how alcohol affects men, and then how it affects women. Uh, So many people mistakenly believe that alcohol is an aphrodisiac. Granted, I don't know who these people are because I never believed it was an aphrodisiac. However, too much alcohol can actually have negative effects on your sex life. Alcohol reduces sexual sensitivity, and for men, alcohol depresses the central nervous system, which means it can make it difficult for some men to get and keep an erection. Drinking may also prevent or delay orgasm, um, and drinking heavily over an extended period of time can even turn a temporary condition into longer-term impotence. So something to keep in mind, dudes. Um, For many women, alcohol consumption increases subjective sexual desire and arousal, although it lowers physiological arousal. So this is uh, from a study conducted by L.J. Beckman and K.T. Ackerman from 1995. Um, And I found this to be really interesting. So again, um, for many women, alcohol increases subjective sexual desire but lowers physiological arousal. So what I interpret that as is that for some women, honestly, this wasn't me, so this is why I find this so fascinating, but for many women, it's that alcohol makes women want to have sex more mentally, but physically their body is Arousal is lowered. So they want to have sex, but they probably won't orgasm. Uh, Despite the general belief that alcohol disinhibits female sexual behaviors, it actually um, leads to changes in sexual behavior for only a minority of women. So that's probably me. I'm probably in that category. Expectancies about the effects of alcohol on sexual behavior may be important mediators of the alcohol sexual behavior linkage. There is also a relationship between overall alcohol consumption and risky sexual behavior for women, which we talked about earlier with decision-making. But when alcohol use at or preceding individual instances of sexual activity is examined, there is no association in the majority of studies. Alcohol use by both perpetrators and victims has been implicated in instances of sexual victimization. So that was a lot of words. And I, I... I kind of want to like summarize it in layman's terms, but I think this is super, super interesting to think about when you look at like how alcohol affects men versus women. So men granted, they always want to have sex, right? That's all I have to say about that. Um, For women, alcohol, I think, I think the reason that it increases sexual desire is because it increases testosterone, if I'm not mistaken. Um, So that's, so women want to have sex or they think they do, um, but Again, physiologically, their bodies don't. They aren't aroused. They probably won't be able to climax or reach an orgasm. So this makes it such that women who have been drinking may want to or think they want to have sex with a man who obviously will take them up on that offer. And then this leads to, let's say, them going home, like a man and a woman going home um, from a bar, you know, ha- um getting intimate, having sex, most likely the dude won't be able to get it up. The woman, you know, feels the shame because society has just normalized male sexuality but continues to have stigma around female sexuality. So then there's that shame around women, you know, know, wanting to have sex and then um, either not being able to actually feel like the benefits of it or just not even being able to, you know, or, or feeling shame because their partner couldn't finish or, or get it up or whatever. And then let's say the man is a dick or an asshole, you know, then he probably, it's just shame on all parts. The man feels like he's not a man because he couldn't um, get an erection and the woman feels shame because she feels like she let him on or she was sexual and she wanted to have sex and it's a lose-lose situation. So I think it's just really important to think about not only in, you know, um, sexual assault, not only in the realm of like sexual assault and domestic violence, because we've talked about that already, but also just in like everyday life, going to a bar, leaving with a guy you think is cute and then... The next day, waking up and and your body's like goes back to normal and it's like, wait, I I feel so bad, like I didn't want to have sex or did I? And questioning behaviors because you're also you know your memory is fucked up. So uh, that's all I have to say about that. Seventeenth thing, and this is more of a positive note um, because I realize a lot of what I've been talking about has been pretty negative, um, but dating is just in general for me a lot more fun without alcohol, and that's certainly something I did not expect when I stop drinking um I remember like one of the first dates I went on well, I you know was texting a guy and, and he proposed a date and he was like let's start at Whistler's and um then go hop like bar hopping on the east side and just check out you know different bars and blah 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 and also for quick context this guy did not know that I was sober And so I followed Lindsay Metzler's advice and I was like, oh God, okay, this is, here we go. And I was like, oh yeah, that sounds so fun. Like just a quick, you know, heads up. um, I I don't drink, but you won't notice. (laughs) Granted, like, I mean, I use that line because I, I thought it was like kind of cute and flirty, but basically for those who don't live in Austin, what he proposed was a night out of drinking, just, you know, going, starting at a bar and then bar hopping. So it's pretty he definitely would have noticed if I wasn't drinking at every single bar that we stopped at. And the response I got was so positive. It was like, wow, that's so refreshing. I'm so sorry for proposing a date that literally revolves around drinking. Why don't we just go to, you know, and then proposed something that was more conducive to talking and, you know, getting to know each other. And I spoke with Ali uh, McElwraith on, the podcast earlier this year about her experience dating, and I and what she talked about is that you know when you're sober and you're you're meeting someone, it's really easy to quickly get a vibe of whether you're you know hitting it off or whether you're not interested in this person in a romantic way. Whereas drinking can definitely, or like when you go out for drinks with a guy, it definitely creates those like goggles where you're like maybe he's cute, maybe i like him. um or like maybe we're hitting it off, but you know, that hitting it off could really just be drunk rambling on your side or his and um also i i'm saying like th- this is from the perspective of someone who's like a heterosexual woman. So if anyone else can speak to a different experience, i'd love to hear it, but for me personally, i found dating without alcohol to be so much more fun, the dates are more creative. And there's also, I mean, the good thing now is that there are so many bars that actually have any options. So um, sometimes what I'll do is say, oh, like, let's go to, like, would you want to meet at this bar? Already knowing that there's like an NA beer or, you know, NA cocktails. And that way I can order something. And, you know, if the question's brought up, um, I'm happy to explain, oh, I don't drink. And literally every single guy that I've spoken to, um then I've said that I don't drink thinks it's really cool like I've I've had no negative reactions from anyone that I've gone on a date with granted it's not it's it's been a very small pool of people but even friends like I, that I've told hey like I I don't drink or you know I've stopped drinking they're like that's so refreshing um and like the guy who I was who I went on that date with was like it's really fun hanging out with you because I don't drink as much. And I feel like that's like something I needed to evaluate as well. So dating is more fun. Okay, the 18th thing I've learned about alcohol since I stopped drinking is really the influence that big alcohol has on our society's obsession with drinking. Um, I'm not sure if any of you all have heard the TikTok that says like, is alcohol the new cigarette? But that's really what I'm going to base this off of and what I learned through reading Quit Like a Woman by Holly Whitaker. In her chapter, Is Alcohol Having a Cigarette Moment? Um, she talks about the history of the cigarette and how alcohol basically stole the marketing playbook. Um, so I'm going to just read a quick excerpt and from from this chapter to explain what I mean. The history of the cigarette is fascinating and short. It was invented in 1865 during the Civil War. While many of us today might easily imagine it as always lodged in American culture, by the early 1900s it accounted for only 2% of all tobacco consumption in the United States. The uh, cigarette started out as a stigmatized, cheap product associated with the lower classes. Its rise to popularity was meteoric. By 1952, more than 80% of all tobacco consumption in the United States was via cigarettes, and by 1954, almost half of all American adults smoked them. This total shift in both the pervasiveness and popularity of the cigarette was brought about by a number of things, most notably developments in business organizations, mass marketing, rejection of Victorian moralism, and astonishingly brilliant maneuvers in the manipulation of the public. When all was said and done, it took about 60 years for the cigarette to become a symbol of rebellion, sexuality, masculinity and femininity and the defining habit of idyllic mid-century America. And then it took then another 60 years for it to become what it is today. A habit practiced mostly at the fringes of American society in the few remaining places where we're allowed to smoke. So there were three key factors that led to the blockbuster success of big tobacco throughout the 20th century and kept us smoking despite mountains of evidence that it was murdering us. One, consolidation of the market, Two, engineered consent. And three, engineered controversy. These same exact tactics were co-opted by what we would now call big alcohol to allow it to grow unchecked and without, without consequence at the cost of millions upon millions of lives. And here's how they did it. So looking at one, the alcohol industry consolidates. Consolidation of the alcohol market tipped after Prohibition when the chemical processing of water, which allowed for a homogenous product, and advances in packaging made mass production and national brands a possibility. Today, nearly every brand of spirit, beer, malt beverage, or alcopop that you are familiar with is owned by one of 16 conglomerates that dominate the global alcohol trade. While in 1938, the alcohol industry spent $6 million on advertising and around $50 million in the 1950s, in 2016, the industry spent $2.3 billion on marketing and advertising in the United States alone. Just like Big Tobacco, consolidating the alcohol industry into a few small firms with an identical product means that competition for our dollars is taken to a whole other level and all kinds of tactics are deployed. They don't just want our money, they want our lifelong dedication to the brand. And just like Big Tobacco... Big alcohol has, a factor, has to factor in replacements. Since the industry is losing 3.3 million of its most loyal customers every year due to the unfortunate side effect of death, its sustained growth depends on indoctrinating new drinkers, women, children, and citizens of low- to middle-income countries. Number two, the en- engineering of consent, or what got us hooked. In order for Big Tobacco to initiate new cigarette smokers, it uh, deployed never-before-seen manipulations of public behavior. One of the first large-scale influencer campaigns came from American Tobacco's quest to get new woman smokers, and this publicity stunt is why the cigarette became the emblem of the feminist rebellion. Big Tobacco played us into believing smoking was symbolic of our liberation, the same way alcohol interests later played us into believing our drinking symbolized this, too. The type of marketing that sold the cigarette to us as a political statement and a fashion accessory is known as engineered consent, a spectacular feat of public relations or propaganda that tricks us into believing our behaviors, tastes and preferences are chosen not by the the creations of men in boardrooms, but by our own volition. Engineered consent operates on the premise that as consumers, we simultaneously want to maintain our individual preferences and gain acceptance for our choices when adopting a new set of behaviors, which explains a lot of things, like how some of us ended up wearing wedge sneakers, dressing in millennial pink, or drinking uh, ass-tons of rosé. We think we're making a decision based on our own preferences when we're actually being manipulated into that decision because because of someone else's. And number three, the engineering of controversy, or what kept us hooked. If you've heard the phrase drink responsibly, I imagine it makes sense to you. That it even sounds sane, thoughtful, perhaps something your parents might tell you. A quick internet search for the term will take you to the site responsibility.org where the banner message reads, empowering adults to make a lifetime of responsible alcohol choices as part of a balanced lifestyle. If you look a little closer, you'll notice that the site is run by the Foundation for Advancing Alcohol Responsibility. And if you dig a little deeper on the site, you'll find that this organization is sponsored by the kind-hearted, well-meaning folks at Bacardi USA, Brown Forman, Consolation Brands, Jägermeister, um, and other alcohol, big alcohol brands. Whereas the tobacco's industry's refrain, not enough research kept the public confused and willfully ignorant of the dangers of the cigarette smoking, big alcohol slogan, Drink Responsibly, posits that... The drug isn't the issue. The issue is that some unfortunate, irresponsible people just can't do it right. Drink responsibly and not enough research are the exact same sleight of hand tactic. The only difference is that the alcohol industry has a boon that tobacco, the tobacco industry didn't. An entire organization dedicated to the treatment of irresponsible drinking. Ultimately, the problem is not the drug. The problem is the people who can't use the drug. So this is really just a small glimpse into the big alcohol industry that Holly Whitaker dives really deep into in her book. And I think the key takeaway is that one of the big reasons that there's, we have a culture that's just obsessed with drinking is because ultimately like big, big alcohol or these 16 companies have really managed to grab a hold of the media, the, um, news, um, even organizations like the one I mentioned that, You know, say that came up with the slogan, drink responsibly. Like they dictate how we view drinking and they normalize drinking behavior. And then when someone has a problem with drinking and gets addicted to alcohol, because once again, it is the second most addictive drug after heroin, we blame the person instead of the drug, which really is... The core of this issue okay on to number 19 which is related to number 18 but it's that alcohol is a feminist issue and i'll explain what i mean by that um, earlier i talked a little bit about how when you know sales were down for alcohol because of the number of deaths it was causing Uh, The groups that were targeted were women, children, and other lower and middle income countries. Uh, But specifically with women, I think it's really interesting to examine how much it consumes our culture and our lives. And again, like we need to think twice about why this is. It's not just because like women love wine. There's something deeper. So Uh, Once again, I'm going to read a page from Holly Whitaker's book, Quit Like a Woman, to expand a little bit about what I'm talking about. Drinking has become so ingrained in the female code, we don't even recognize the nearly endless ways it's pierced our every experience, or even stop to think about the cost of that infiltration. Wine and spirits and even beer are a celebrated quintessential accessory to having made it as a woman. For moms, one of the most targeted demographics, alcohol isn't just something that pairs well with making dinner. It's what you do all day, every day. There are an almost endless number of greeting cards, magnets, t-shirts, onesies that basically celebrate always being drunk because mothering, we joke, makes us drink. Let's repeat that. Moms are so brainwashed into normalizing what amounts to severe drug abuse, we are literally dressing our babies up in clothes to poke fun at it. There are groups like sippy cups are for Chardonnay, moms who need wine, an urban dictionary of a wine mom, hashtag wine mom, Um, a coloring book titled Mommy's Drinks Because You Cry. This is wild. And no one bats an eyelash. We toast and wink because we are all in on the joke. And that's just the tip of the iceberg because wine isn't just the mascot of motherhood. It's the mascot of being a young, single, professional, or an old, retired, empty nester, or basically just being a woman at all. It is so ingrained in what it means to be a woman, we hardly even notice it standing there next to us in almost every photograph or showing up at every single thing we attempt to do. We've been programmed to accessorize our lives with wine to the point that we can't even see it anymore or see how the statistics that show skyrocketing rates of alcohol-related liver failure or alcohol addiction includes us in them. The horror stories and damages are seen as things that happen to other people. What I'm saying is booze fucks our shit up more than most things, more than gluten, for sure, more than dairy, for sure, more than white sugar and tap water, for sure. And it fucks our shit up, not because it's an addictive toxic chemical, but because we live in a world where we haven't quite caught on to that fact yet. And that the fact that we think it's safer because it's legal and everyone is doing it, including our health icons, is what makes it even more dangerous than, say, cigarettes. And this mommy wine culture is really just one of a multitude of reasons why alcohol is a feminist issue. Like, for example, if we look at marketing tactics that big alcohol uses, um, one is selling the idea that drinking promotes sisterhood and female friendships, connected and connection and bonding, which is just a basic human need. And I mean, I always fell victim of that too. I remember my first episode; I was saying how I really was gonna miss like bonding with my sister like over wine or with my mom and it's like why why does it have to be over wine or you know if you look at how brands inauthentically use feminist language to sell empowerment of like fuck the patriarchy i'm just gonna have a beer or like i'm a cool girl i'm what do they call them and uh pick me girl i'm gonna have a beer or whatever and then i mean that those are the less severe ways Then you think about the connection between alcohol and sexual assault and alcohol and breast cancer, fetal alcohol syndrome disorders. There are just so many reasons. And for anyone listening who is a woman and just the next time you pick up a drink, think about like why you're picking up a drink and you know who you're with. Because I think just like examining why we do these things is the first step to changing them, which doesn't even, like, that doesn't even have to be sobriety, but maybe it means, like, buying from a a local wine store or um, an organic wine shop or something, you know, that's just not a result of these big alcohol marketing schemes. Okay, number 20, Uh, and this I actually learned recently, there is no such thing as an addictive personality. When I spoke to Annie Grace about this, I felt like so much weight had been lifted off my shoulders because for so long I not only justified my drinking or justified my many mental health issues, but I also blamed myself for the fact that my quote unquote addictive personality had caused them all from an eating disorder when I was younger, obsessive compulsion disorder when I was a kid and then, lo and behold, a problem with alcohol. I really, really got into the mentality that the problem was me. But the way Annie Grace phrased it is just so enlightening. Ultimately, there's no such thing as an addictive personality. Let's break it down. I got addicted to a substance that is addictive. So, that makes sense. The reason why my drinking got worse as I got older is because I was drinking more as I got older. And I was drinking more as I got older because the more you drink, the more you need that drink. The more you are addicted to that drink because again, it's an addictive substance. And then the second part of that aside from it just, you know, alcohol being an addictive substance is the fact that the qualities that it made me want to go out and drink in the first place are the same qualities that make me an extrovert, that make me a connector, that make me, like, love to socialize and make new friends and start a podcast randomly and things like that and, you know, work hard at my job. Really, those same qualities of, you know, being outgoing, like, just socializing, those are all what not only brought me to alcohol, but more importantly, brought me friends, brought me to grad school, allowed me to take that leap, brought me to Austin, brought me to Making like meeting new people, and I think just reframing that mindset has been so transformational because I no longer look at my quote unquote addictive personality as a bad thing, but I look at it rather as something to be really proud of. Because if you think about it, like if you think about it at people you look up to, let's say, um, I don't know how I thought about this, let's say Bradley Cooper, he's a cool guy, very good looking. He's sober, along with many other celebrities. I mean, if you like Brene Brown, Glennon Doyle, these are people I look up to. They're all sober, and they're all also very successful. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that the qualities that make you very successful, make you very driven, make you get to where you want to be, are also the same qualities that can lead you to becoming addicted to an addictive substance but what these people also did is stop drinking that addictive substance and now look where they are you know i mean glennon doyle has written one of the like books that was on the new york's best time sellers list for the longest times and Brene brown is just like a mega icon and bradley cooper <laughs> for whatever reason i brought him up you know as a award-winning oscar-winning actor like these people are so successful. And if you look into more and more people who don't drink, whether it's Natalie Porton, Elton John, Rumor Willis, Dak Shepard, Shania Twain, Tyler the Creator, Zach Evron, Bradley Cooper, again, Tyra Banks, Kristen Davis, Jada Pinkett Smith, Robert Downey Jr., Christina Ritchie, Naomi Campbell, Lonald Del Rey, Leona Lewis, Lucy Hale, Jack Osborne, Rob Lowe, Calvin Harris, Eva Mendez, Daniel Radcliffe, Russell Brand, Blake Lively, Kendrick Lamar, Andy Murray, Mike Posner. And you get the point. They don't drink. And there's a reason. And I think that reason is because they have, quote unquote, addictive personalities. Number 21. There's no such thing as alcoholism. So let me quickly explain what I mean by this. Because There are a lot of factors that are related to uh, alcoholics anonymous and i'm not going to dive too much into that because i'd be here for like another hour um but i'm just going to quickly give you like a you know quick synopsis or spark notes edition so alcoholics anonymous is founded upon the disease model of alcoholics which states that problem drinking is sometimes caused by a disease of the brain characterized by altered brain structure and function so according to this theory, the theory of, you know, the disease model, genes play a strong role in the development of alcoholism. To my best knowledge from what I've read, everything that I've read, there this theory or this gene, um disease model or the fact that genes play a role in the development of alcoholism has not been confirmed and there's not been many scientific studies Done or peer reviewed studies completed about this. I think they've found like genetic qualities, you know, like ones I talked about earlier when I was talking about addictive personality that make one more prone to having a problem with drinking or, you know, because they start drinking and they just end up drinking more. But in terms of genes that actually cause one to have a problem specifically with alcohol. I am like 99.9% sure that has never been proven. Um, And to provide just like additional context on what I mean when I say that there is no such thing as alcoholism or at the very least, there shouldn't be anything as alcoholism. um, I'm gonna read, you guessed it, (laughs) a little bit more from Holly Whitaker's book. The need for alcohol is perpetuated by the consumption of alcohol, pure and simple. You were not addictive before you imbibed the same way that you were not addicted to cigarettes before you smoked. Further, it has been shown time and time again that after people ditch their addiction to the substance entirely, they go on to not want it at all. People like me, I'm not one drink away from alcoholism or addiction. I'm beyond the need to get intoxicated in order to get through life or have fun at a party. Not because it has to be this way, but because I prefer it to be this way. I like life without a crutch. I like not having hangovers or forgetting parts of the night before or living in a fear state. I like not having to think about alcohol. We think that being cured means being able to drink again without going overboard or our lives going to hell. We think that it means being able to imbibe like quote unquote normal drinkers. Cured means never having to drink again. Cured means enjoying life without needing to reach for a glass of wine to unwind each day or to enjoy a celebratory event. Cured means being able to remain present and to ride the ups and downs without having to numb or escape them. Cured means not having to keep the beast of alcohol at bay, but being free of it altogether. Secondly, alcohol is the only drug in the world where, when you stop taking it, you are seen as having a disease. And this this hits. Because alcohol is the only socially accepted drug, Because most of us consume it, because we have come to believe that there are quote-unquote normal drinkers and then there are quote-unquote alcoholics, and because alcoholism is self-diagnosed, it is literally the only drug in the world where you get a label and a lifetime disease once you admit you need to, want to, or do stop. I never had a problem when I was out three or four nights a week drinking the same amount as my friends. I never had a problem when I was doing ski shots with my coworkers or when I stayed out drinking until 4 a.m. on a weeknight. But when I tapped out, when I stopped drinking alcohol, that's when I qualified for a drinking disease. Let me be clear on the insanity of this. When I drank and clearly abused, I did not have alcoholism. However, when I said I can't drink, I became an alcoholic because we believe everyone should be able to drink ethanol and those who can are somehow defective and we assign a label and a lifetime disease. Once again, this goes back to a lot of other things that I've been talking about, but it really is wild when you think about the fact that alcohol is the only drug that, as Holly said, like we self-diagnose ourselves with it. I mean, ultimately, you can go to a doctor and I guess if you're, you know, drinking severely impacts your life, then you are sent to rehab um, against your will. Like that's a possibility. But for me, like I decided to stop drinking. I said, this is enough. And then only then, you know, I haven't been to an AA meeting, but if I were to, I'd say, hi, my name is Zoe and I'm an alcoholic. And it's like, something about putting that label on myself, just never felt comfortable. And a lot of the books that I've read and 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 the authors who I really respect kind of emphasize that, how only once you say that like, I have this problem, are you then looked at differently? And hopefully this can change. Like, I'm not saying that Alcoholics Anonymous, like although there are, are many faults, you know, there it also does really amazing things for people and I'm and I'm not trying to deny that or say otherwise. I just hope we can get to a place one day where people who say they don't drink aren't questioned for having a problem or aren't like looked at differently, but rather are celebrated. And, you know, I hope it's one day the norm that most people don't drink because Just like with cigarettes, you know, people saw the science and then ultimately they said, okay, maybe, maybe it's a good idea if I don't get lung cancer. And so with alcohol, same thing, like maybe one day people will actually be able to escape the chain, the big alcohol and say, you know what? I'm good. I'm just going to have a mocktail. Number 22. I promise I'm almost done y'all. Bear with me. Alcohol takes away so much of your time so when you stop drinking it you just have a whole lot more time on your hand like it's not just the actual act of like going out and drinking and staying up late like obviously that takes time and um obviously I I still do that I still go out I still will occasionally stay out late but then the, the hangovers and The naps that I need to take because of the hangovers. Like all of that is removed. So on a Saturday and a Sunday, I can wake up at like 8 a.m. and just get on with my day like any other day of the week. It's really – I don't know why it feels like so much more time, but it it does. I think it's also because when I was drinking and I would get a hangover, it wouldn't just like – impact me physically but also if anything more so emotionally so that for like the remainder of that day and weekend even if I didn't you know drink for the rest of the weekend I would still be like thinking about either things I did that I regretted on the night that I was drinking or just getting a really bad funk and go into kind of like a hole of depression and feel sad which just you know Took up time because I didn't want to do anything because I just wanted to lie in bed and be sad and watch TV. So, all that is to say is uh, just as um, Chris, who I had on the podcast a couple months ago, said, I'll call, you know, robs us of our most precious resource, which is time, because really, time is truly our only resource that is limited. And finally, number 23 the final thing that I've learned about alcohol or mostly about sobriety uh, since I stopped drinking alcohol is that I am just so much happier. This is like cheesy, corny, we all weird to say, but I, I truly can't express how much happier I've been these past 100 days. I We'll be real, real with y'all. Like I was in a really bad place in the fall. I, I mean, it was a combination of things between just being super overwhelmed with school, um, starting a really intense internship at a suicide hotline, having just like friendship fallouts, and feeling really lonely in Austin. And I was, I was pretty sure that I was. Fully back in depression, and that I was going to have to, you know, go on more antidepressants or reevaluate the current dosage that I was on. And I kid you not, ever since I've stopped drinking, it's been like, I'm, a, I'm, a, that it, it's almost like that was a weird fever dream. Like, I am in such a better place. I, if anything, am reevaluating my medication to go on a lower dosage because I feel so good. And things that used to bother me and used to take me down and used to make me sit in bed and just cry and cry and cry don't affect me as much anymore. And for so long, I really thought alcohol was just like contributing to my depression and and making it worse. But now I think it had a huge factor in causing it. Like it's, it's really, it's really weird. And when I think back to, you know, when I, my mental health started getting worse, I don't think it's a coincidence that that was around sophomore year of college. And yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that that's when I started drinking more heavily. So obviously there are other factors influencing, you know, my depression, my anxiety, etc. But The best thing I ever could have done for my mental health was to stop drinking. And I'm just so freaking proud of myself for finally coming to that decision and making this change for myself because I feel like I am just a better person, a better friend better sister, a better daughter. And yeah, I just, I I feel so much happier, so much better. And I haven't ever looked back on my decision to quit drinking. So those are 23 things that I've learned about alcohol and sobriety since I quit drinking. If you if any of those resonated with you or if, you know, you'd like to learn more about my sobriety journey, please reach out to me. I'm more than happy to talk about it clearly. And, you know, if you're um, thinking about reevaluating your relationship with alcohol, I, I'd i be happy to send over recommendations of books and podcasts, etc. So that is all. I wish you all a wonderful week ahead and yeah. Bye everyone you <music>